Welcome to the Overflow Podcast. We pray you are encouraged by this message. For more info, notes, or other messages, visit our website at overflowdfw.com. Last week we launched this season, this campaign uh, called The Good Good News. And uh, basically what we're doing is we're going through the book of Mark. We've never done a, a, a series this long before, and so we're calling it a season uh, because it's going to be about 16 weeks. So we're pretty pumped about that. I know that's a long time, but you're here, and if you're first week, you can jump in on it. And uh, it's pretty easy to get caught up when there's only 16 chapters, and so especially when you're on week two. And so we've got all kinds of things we're doing, all of our small groups. I was actually helping uh, Judah last night with his assignment for Kid Flow Youth. And so we're all of our ministries, all of our small groups are going through the book of Mark. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays on our website, overflowdfw.com, we have uh, blogs that are being posted a couple times a week, or social media stuff. It, it's all easy to find. You just got to know that, overflowdfw.com. Just click on the newspaper, and it'll take you right to that blog, and you can you can uh, supplement your content. Because I don't know about you, but one chapter a week is not enough for me, right? And so what I'm doing is I'm reading it over and over again in different translations. There's additional reading on your notes. So you can just dig a little bit deeper into these narratives. And so... Last week, we talked about uh, Jesus showing up as the king, and he's bringing a kingdom. And this week, I want to talk about how Jesus makes a statement. Everybody say, Jesus makes a statement. Jesus makes a statement. Come on, if you have good news, somebody made a statement, and Jesus made a statement. So it says this in Mark chapter 2. This is a phenomenal story. It says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Come on. How many of y'all like know that, like the report that Jesus is here, right? Jesus is in town. It was reported. So people are talking about it. They're talking about Jesus. It's news when Jesus shows up. And many were gathered around so that there was no more room even at the door. And he was preaching the word to him. We talked about this last week. Jesus came preaching. Come on, how many know Jesus was a preacher? He wasn't just a humanitarian figure. Figure Jesus was bringing a word. And so here, there he is. Before he brought a wonder, he brought a word. And there he is bringing the word. And it says that it was such a good word that the house was filling up. People were filling up at the door and they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. A par- paralytic is someone who's paralyzed. They can't move. There's, no, there's nothing on their body that functions properly. And so they bring him a paralytic carried by four men. Everybody say four men. And they could not get near him because of the crowd. So they removed the roof. They took the roof off above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith. Now, now hold up right there just a moment. Let's talk about this because you've got... Jesus in town, and everybody's showing up to see Jesus. We all want to see Jesus. We all want to hear what Jesus has to say. We know he's been doing miracles. It's it's not big news yet, but it's kind of on the underground circuit. Like, he hasn't really gone public, but it's kind of public. I mean, news spreads pretty fast when you're healing people left and right. And so these four friends have a friend that's paralyzed, and he's at home, just at home, doing what he always doing. What was a paralyzed person do? He's just laying there. He's just laying there at home every day. But these four friends heard the news. The paralyzed man, they heard the news that Jesus was back in town. And so they think, hey, maybe if he could heal lepers, 
Maybe he could heal our friend that's been paralyzed. And so they said, let's get together. Let's take our friend to Jesus. So they put him on the mat, and these four people carry Jesus, and they go, they show up at the house where he's at, and the house is full of people. It's a party. Right? And Jesus is, you know, preaching. I don't think he's just kind of, you know, like the old movies, but he's, he's passionately preaching, and they show up, and they can't get inside because the crowd is so thick and heavy. So they're like, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to get our friend to Jesus? How many want a friend like that? Well, we will do whatever it takes. So they, they start kind of looking around, and they say, hey, let's, let's get up on the roof. I don't know if they had stairs or a ladder, but they had to go up to a higher place to get above the crowd, come on, to get to a position to get their friend to Jesus. So they said, we'll just tear the roof off. We'll just take the roof off this whole house. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound right to me. That's kind of shady. I mean, they're, they're in there messing up somebody else's house to get their friend to Jesus. And so they talk to Jesus. They lower the friend down to Jesus. And Jesus isn't frustrated. I mean, they're making a mess. They're tearing up somebody else's property. And Jesus is there. And it says this when he saw their faith. I mean, this is where things change. When Jesus sees their faith. What does faith look like? Work. Faith looks like diligence. Faith looks like effort. That's what faith looks like. I love it that there's four friends, that he's got four friends. Hey, I need friends like that. I mean, these are the kind of friends you need. Not just the kind of friends that go, you know what, we know that Jesus is in town, but, you know, he might be a little bit embarrassed to go out in public. We don't want to bring attention to his issues. But instead, they said, we need to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. How many of you know that you need friends that are not just there by your bedside, consoling you and comforting you and bringing all that? You need to have friends in your life that will do whatever it takes to get you to Jesus. But we live in a culture to where if someone makes us uncomfortable, we defriend them. You can't be my cousin, you know. I'm sensitive, or I have this issue going on. You're not sensitive enough, so you can't be my friend. I don't want sensitivity in my friends. I want them to be willing to do whatever it takes for, to help resolve the issues in my life. And some of you are looking for friends that will just look at your weakness and ignore your issues. I don't want friends that will ignore my issues. I want friends that will recognize my issues and help get me to the man who can fix my issues. And so I love it that there's these four friends, just four of them. I don't know if these are the only friends he has, probably. I mean, they just spent a lot of time in his house doing nothing. Four friends. But don't you know that number five is the number of grace? And they introduce this friend of theirs to the fifth friend. The fifth friend is Jesus. And Jesus, grace personified, is there. And he looks at this man, and what does he do? Well, Mark, uh, Luke's account says this. He calls him friend. Jesus befriends the man. In the narrative here in Mark, he calls him son. He calls him son. He calls him son. What was the work that he saw when he saw their faith? Well, what did he see? He saw it. How many know that, that faith has an appearance? Faith materializes. 
When we talk about our faith, we talk about this kind of just a quiet kind of trust. No, faith looks like work. Faith looks like diligence. And I love it that it wasn't his faith, but it was their faith. When I, when I first came to the Lord, we called this faith by proxy. Kind of weird. I'm glad they quit saying that. That was weird. Proxy, proxy faith. What's that mean? That means that, that someone else would represent you. And so if you were having a service like this and you had a friend that was paralyzed with fear and they couldn't get out of their house and go to work or provide for their family, and you love that friend enough that you would go to a, someone that knows how to pray and you would get in front of that person and you would represent that person in that moment. We call this, I'm going to stand here, I'm going to represent them by proxy. That's the kind of friends you need. Not the kind of friends that are just going to comfort you and tell you, you know, you just got issues. You're just born that way. You know, it's just part of your personality. You know, life's been really hard on you. God bless you on your mat. I don't want to God bless you on your mat. I want you to do whatever it takes to get me to Jesus. You know, sometimes, sometimes I don't have faith for what I need. Sometimes the faith that I... For what I need is in you. And I need to borrow your faith. And sometimes, sometimes you're going to need to borrow my faith. So I want to make sure that I put enough friends around me. When I don't have the faith to make it to Jesus, that I have friends around me that say, you know what? You could, we'll be faithful for you. We'll put the faith on. We'll do the work. We know that you can't get up on the roof. We'll get you to the roof. We know that you can't get to Jesus. We'll get, I know you can't get to church. I know your car broke down. I'll be there to pick you up. I'll be there to drive you to work. I'll be there. I'll be there to get you to where you need to be. So not just to affirm you in the midst of your infirmity, but get you to where you need to be free of it. So you can be free of it. So, how many of y'all want friends like that? I need friends like that. You need friends like that. I know you want friends that just tell you you're amazing all the time. We love affirmation. And we need friends that will affirm us also, and not, not just always picking out our flaws. But listen, if, they, if they're telling you you've got some things that you need to work on, they're a true friend. The wounds of a friend, right? So the wounds of a friend can be trusted. So it says this in verse 5. I know we kind of got off there. It's a good place to get off. So he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Son... Your sins are forgiving. Now, there were some scribes sitting there. Now, scribes, what scribes are, scribes are, are professional, not just law keepers, but law communicators, stewards of the law. They would actually take the, the books of Moses, and they would copy them down. They would write them down, and it was a very religious thing. They were very respected. But what they started doing is they started saying, well, you know, they don't really interpret it right, so let's fix it a little bit. And so what had happened is they, they ended up adding to the law so much. And they became very, very critical of the people that weren't keeping the law, especially the Sabbath, which we'll get into in a minute. And it says this, that they were there, they were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why, did this, why does this man speak like this? I mean, they didn't even say anything. Has, has that ever happened to you? You were thinking something, but you're you know, I'm, I'm not going to say something, <laughs> but you're saying something. Right? It's just not out of your mouth yet. Right? So, sometimes you don't need to say everything you think, by the way. He who speaks his whole mind is a fool, the scriptures tell us. What if I told you that silence 
is actually a virtue. (laughs) So they're there thinking these things in their heart, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is their thoughts. And immediately, there it is. Circle that. Circle it every time you see it in your, in your journals. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things? So they're thinking it, and Jesus, Jesus says what they're thinking. <laughs> Come on. Why are you saying these things in your hearts, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, which is easier? Judah and I were having this conversation last night. I was like, which one's easier to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Not easy to do. Come on. It's easier to do. It's harder to do. Get up and walk. So he says this, which is easier to say. Because as soon as you say they're forgiven, you're blaspheming. Because you're saying you're God. Your sins are forgiven, or you say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know who the Son of Man is, or that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks at the paralytic. He had already forgiven his sins. So he looks at the paralytic and say, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Then he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. This is this incredible miracle. We love the miracle. Jesus healing the guy through the roof, man. Look at their faith, the friends. Awesome. We love it. But listen, it's so much more than a miracle. We preach the miracle. We need to preach the miracle. The miracle moves us. It connects us with Jesus' compassion. We love it. It, it. it puts Jesus within reach, right? Just the understanding. But listen, Jesus was doing more than performing a miracle. He was making a statement. See, Jesus is always making a statement. He's always got something to say. And it's always good. Come on, it's always good news what he has to say. Even if it doesn't feel like good news, it is good news. So in this moment, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is revealing his identity. He hasn't done it yet. He's never said son of man in Mark's gospel until this point. So he's saying, let me show you who I am. And he's doing it right in front of the religious, intentionally, calling them out on their thoughts and intentionally revealing who he is. And the first thing that he does that he reveals himself as is the discerner of hearts. The discerner of hearts. See, these questions that these men were asking, they weren't questions out of curiosity. They were questions of accusation. That's what the devil does. That's the way the devil asks questions. He always asks questions. He never, he never quote unquote, makes statements. He never, he never says this is the way it is. He always causes you to question through accusation. Right? Remember the garden? If God really is good, if God really said, did God really say, remember Jesus in the desert? What did he say? If when the Satan came to him, when Satan came to him, what did he say? 
if you are the son of God. Always questioning with accusations. So this is what they're doing in their hearts. They're not the devil, but they're pretty close. And they're questioning Jesus. Listen, God isn't bothered by your questions for information or for curiosity. But he is troubled when you accuse him with your questions. God, if you're really good, then that's an accusation because you're saying God isn't good. And, and let me say this. It would it'd be easy for us to say, well, Jesus is using discernment, the spiritual gift of discernment. I know what's in people's hearts. You don't know what's in people's hearts. You can have the gift of discernment and not know what's in somebody's heart. But Jesus knows what's in. So this is why the scriptures say, the scripture, let me, let me help you. The scripture doesn't say don't judge. Judging isn't a sin. In fact, we're called as believers to judge. We're called to test fruit. If you get a word from the Lord and it's not in the scripture, then you need to take that word and you need to test it to see whether it's God's word or not. You get a thought, you should judge that thought and see whether it's God's thoughts or your thoughts or the devil's thoughts. You need to be a good discerner. Jesus talks about this, right? You should know a tree by its fruit. It's got apples on it. It's an apple tree, right? It's got oranges. It's an orange tree. So we're called to discern. We're called to decide, to make decisions. We're not called to be critical. We're not called to be condemning. And so many people will use that, and they'll flip it around, and they're jumping on the other end. No, you need. You especially need to be a good, good at judgment on yourself. <laughs> Come on. And so the thing is, is only God can really judge the intentions. And this is where judgment is wrong, is when we say that person is doing that because in their heart they think this. That's when you enter into sin because you are equating yourself with only something that God can do, and that's no intentions. Only God knows intentions. In fact, I would say this, that God knows the intentions of people better than people know the intentions of people. And he says this, he says, we need the Spirit of God to, to discern the thoughts of God. You need God to get God. Right? You need God to understand God. And this is why it's important. Hebrews 4.12 says this. It says, we get into the word. Why? The, the word is a sharp-edged sword. What does it do? Discerns between soul and spirit. Is this just emotional or is it the Lord? You got to have the word of God to help you do that. You need the word of God to help you make good judgments. But we don't judge the interior of people. We don't judge people's motivation. That's sinful. Because then we're making a decision about something we don't know. But God knows the interior. Jesus knows the interior. So in this moment, he knows what they're thinking. He knows what's in their heart, and he speaks it out. The second thing that he says is this, that he's the forgiver of sins. He's the forgiver of sins. See, Jesus, what I love is this paralytic. Was he a sinner? Yeah. Just like you. Just like me, when I came to Jesus, when somebody got me to Jesus, did, was I a sinner? Absolutely. So was this man a sinner? Yes. Jesus recognizes the man has sin. In fact, they get him there to get healed, and Jesus calls him out as a sinner. But he doesn't call him out the way most people call out sinners. Most people call out sinners, go, you filthy sinner. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Friend, your sins are are forgiven. So Jesus turned sinners into sons. He didn't just make you a modified sinner. You were born again. You got a new nature when you came to Christ. You're not a sinner anymore. Some of you keep sinning royally because you just think you're a sinner. You're not just a sinner. 
You're a sinner that has been rescued, saved by the grace of God who re-identified you, not as a sinner. When God looks at you, he doesn't say, sinner. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. I release you for paying for your sins. I know someone who will take care of those sins for you. And his name is Jesus. So he's the forgiver of sins. So the scribes, when they make this statement in their hearts, what they're accusing Jesus of is blasphemy. Why? Blasphemy. I mean, blasphemy is like, it's like the worst thing, right? Have you ever said that? Like, even when you say the word blasphemy, that's blasphemy. You're like, you feel enraged and empowered. Why? Because there's not much worse you can do than blaspheme. They're blaspheming the name of God. So they're accusing Jesus and they say he's blaspheming because he's forgiving sins. Because there's only one who can forgive sins. And it's God. And so by Jesus forgiving sins, what is he doing? He's saying he's God. See, he only forgives sins as, number three, the third identification that Jesus is revealing himself is, he can only forgive sins as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. The Son of Man track with me, is, is used a lot in the book of Ezekiel concerning messianic prophecies. Talks about there's this one coming. He's the son of man. Daniel says it. I don't like the way Daniel says it. In verse 7, verse 13, again, this is a messianic term. And again, this is the first time it's used in the book of Mark. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. Here we go. He was given authority honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. Remember Jesus at the end? He says, all authority has been given to me. See, Jesus is in charge of the entire universe. He's totally in charge. It's all his. He's the king of the universe. Not just the king of your heart. Not just, oh, Savior, you can move a mountain. I know, I love that too. But listen, he he is the ruler of the cosmos. Jesus, a man, the son of man, is ruling the cosmos, the Son of Man, the Son of God. So it says this, so that people of every race and every nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. In other words, there's not another king going to show up. See, you, you think everything's going to get, regardless of your political standing, you think things are going to get better because there's a new president in charge in November? It doesn't matter who's in charge. It's not going to make it better. You know what's going to make it better? When people yield their heart to Jesus. That's when it's going to get better. Whenever we yield, when the governments of the earth yield to the government of heaven, that's when things get better. And it's when people decide, I am going to bow my government, the government of my life, to his government. That's when things get better. To his kingdom. And remember, we talked about this. This is, this is the messianic uh, promise that was given to David. Right? Your kingdom will know no end. And so Jesus came, son of David. Jesus came from that line. We talked about this in our God of Promise series, that Jesus was the fulfillment of that, of that promise that God gave to David. Now, some would say, and, and maybe you've questioned this before, some would say that Jesus never said he was God. People, people say that. I'm like, apparently you haven't read the scriptures much. Well, he just did. Jesus just said he was God. He just said he is God by saying, I can forgive sins. He was just saying he is God by referring himself to the Son of Man. 
Lifeway Research did a, a poll earlier this year. And they found out that 52% of Americans believed that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but they didn't believe he was God. 52%. And I'm okay with Americans thinking that. I don't, I don't buy into this narrative that America is a Christian nation. I don't, I don't buy into that. 52% said they don't believe that Jesus was God. He was just a good teacher. But what troubled me was this next stat that they found. It said that only one-third of those that identify as Christians affirm that Jesus is God. So you got all these people running around calling themselves Christians. Now, I don't know what that means. I'm a Christian because I was, I'm white, 40-something man born in America. That makes me a Christian. No, it doesn't. You're not, you're not born a Christian. You're born again a Christian, right? And so we have this mindset that how I was raised makes me a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Christian means that you've been born again and you follow Jesus. That's what makes you a Christian. So I don't know the backstory. I don't know the interior of the people that made this. But I'm troubled that that a third of the people that claim to follow Jesus don't follow him as him being God, but just a good teacher. Beloved, if Jesus was just a good teacher, he was a really bad teacher. If Jesus was just a man, only a man, then he developed nothing other than a cult following. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's exactly who he says he is, the Lord. And so I want to suggest to you today that this idea of Jesus being a deity, the deity, is his identity. His identity is his deity. This is a non-negotiable. So if Jesus was only a teacher, then he's a liar. And if you believe Jesus, if you don't believe Jesus is God, then you're serving a different Jesus. Hear me, beloved. I don't care how involved you are in church. I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care how hard you've tried. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you're serving a different Jesus from the Scriptures, one who is unable to save you. Because the only way that Jesus can save you is if Jesus can forgive you. And the only way that he can forgive you is that if he is the Son of Man and the Son of God, able to remove the sin from your life. It's critical. It's not a, it's not a B storyline. It's not just something, well, I kind of think this. I guess. No, no, no. This is a non-negotiable. The Jesus of the Scriptures, the Jesus that saves, is the God of the universe. We often describe the Trinity as one what and three who's. One what, three who's, right? God is one, but it's got three who's in God. We got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is one of those who's with two what's. <laughs> Hold on. Jesus is one who with two what's. What is Jesus? Is Jesus a man or is Jesus God? Yes. The answer is yes. Now, it hasn't always been this way. I love this. The incarnation. 
So Mary, the birth, right, the virgin birth, how did that happen? God, it's the only way it happens. God did it. God's responsible. So Jesus, listen, Jesus didn't start to exist 2,000 years ago. He's always existed. He was before time, before space, before creation. Jesus was there. Jesus has always been the Son of God. Always. Always been the Son of God. In fact, he makes some appearances throughout the Old Testament, right? Just kind of shows up. But he hasn't always been material. He hasn't always been physical in form. He didn't always have skin on. But 2,000 years ago, roughly 2,000 years ago, Jesus shows up, come on, in a barn, born of a virgin, and he took skin on. The word of flesh, the, the word of God made flesh and made his dwelling among us. So he's always been there. He's always existed, but now he takes on skin and bones. The immaterial becomes material, but still immaterial. Love it. So crazy. And then Jesus lives his life, does his thing, dies, and is resurrected, and he, have, he has what we call a resurrected body. So he still has a physical form. This is my favorite. He still has a physical form. He still has earlobes. He still has elbows. He still has kneecaps. Like, he's physical. He's a physical man. Love it. There is a man, a physical material man in heaven. Right now, he's not a spirit floating in the cosmos that you can't see. When we see Jesus, we will see him physically. He is a physical man, the son of man, because when he got that resurrected body, it's a body that doesn't decay. We'll get a body like that at the resurrection. When the Lord returns, we'll get a body like that. So you're like, come on, I'll be happy to make the exchange. I know for me, I'm getting there. Come on, Lord, bring it on. Give it to me now, right? <laughs> what are my payments going to look like? Come on, hook me up. We will, have, we will have resurrected bodies like Jesus. So Jesus is able to eat still. He's still got scars in his hands, but he's also able to, like, walk through walls. Crazy. The immaterial became material. It's fun. It's fun. The incarnation. You can teach somebody that this week. Did you know that Jesus, when someone says, oh, Jesus was just a man? Well, not just a man. He is a man, but he's also God. He's the God-man. He's the God-man Jesus. So, he's making this statement. Jesus just said he was God. So, if somebody ever tells you, because you're in this study, Jesus never said he was God, say, well, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 2, and let's talk about the incarnation. Just start dropping bombs on them like that, and they'll be like, huh, and then convince them of the Lord and his goodness, and then lead him to Jesus. It'd be awesome, and then bring him here, and you can baptize him, and all that stuff. It'd be great. So Jesus re- forgives sin as the son of man. The fourth statement that Jesus makes is that he's the great physician. Now, we love healing. We love healing. We, we see healing all throughout the Old Testament, but this is what's awesome, is healing was always accomplished through Yahweh Rapha, the healer, Right? Always. So he's always been the healer throughout the Old Testament. And it's, so now God in flesh is doing the healing. He's not like, hey, go do the thing and miracle kind of. No, no, he's like, he's the one touching people. He's the one speaking over people. And so what you're dealing with in this moment 
is that Jesus doesn't address his sickness immediately. He addresses his sin. Interesting. Why is Jesus addressing his sin? Because the man's a sinner. Just like those accusing him at the window. Just like those accusing, just, just like the ones sitting at the table. They're all sinners. Was he sinner? Yeah, he was. Jesus treated him differently, though. So there's this idea. Part of the reason why this is such a big deal for the scribes there is because they're pretty much exclusively believed if you had sickness in your life, it's because you sinned. I mean, that's pretty much exclusively what the religious people thought. So you were exiled. You weren't just sick. You were a sinner. They were sinners too, by the way. They just like to point at everybody else's sin. So could this be the case? Could it be the case that this man had sinned? Because this is true. This happens sometimes. Could it be the case that this man had sinned and this is what got him into this condition? It's possible. At least he thought that. At least he thought that. So when Jesus addresses the sin, the sin, it moves the man. Right? Because now he's like, I have sinned. But Jesus isn't treating him like a sinner. He's treating him like a son. Now, sickness is not always the result of personal sin, but it's always the result of original sin. Does that make sense? In this Sin, entered, sin and sickness entered the world at the same time. There was no sickness when Adam and Eve. They didn't get sick until sin entered the world. It's a result of the fall. It's a result of Adam's sin. So you get sick, not necessarily because you sinned, but because Adam and Eve did. Thanks a lot. However, under the new covenant, we have the provision of healing because Jesus carried our sickness, carried our sorrow, the punishment that was upon him brought healing to you. Jesus is, so the idea was that sickness was a punishment from God for people that sinned. Some people still think that. Now, could that be a case? Sometimes. Because we live in a fallen, broken world, and sin is in the air, and sickness is in the air, and by not yielding those things to our life, it can be caused, you know. Sometimes we do sinful things, and there's diseases that are attached so this was the thought always. So consider that this man was living not just in a lame state, but he was also very um, wounded in the sense that he was full of shame, that he was full of guilt. So the reality is this, is that we all need forgiveness. We all need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. It doesn't mean that you're not a son. Are you listening? It doesn't mean that you're not a son. So healing, although a very high priority and a core component of Jesus's ministry, it's important to remember that this is that healing is temporary, that sickness is temporary, that disease is temporary. Even if you die of it, it's still temporary. But forgiveness involves eternal ramifications. So Jesus deals with the internal before he deals with the temporal. I love it. So Jesus deals with both. He deals with life and life more abundantly, right? He deals with abundant life first and then life after. He flips the script. So he's the great physician. That's another statement that he makes. The the fifth and the final statement that he makes, and I have a, a little bonus statement here, is that he's the rewarder of faith. He's the rewarder of faith. When he saw their faith, we talked about it. 
when he saw their faith. Jesus rewards faith. God rewards faith. Some might say, no, 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 no. God rewards obedience. You ever heard that? God rewards obedience, not faith. Did you know faith obeys? In fact, if you don't have works to back up your faith, you don't have faith. According to James, faith without works is dead. So your, your, your works are backed up by your faith. Hebrews 11.6, get this, because this is what you get into. You think God's pleased with me today because I obeyed or displeased because I disobeyed. Because you can even be full of faith and still disobey sometimes. Are you sure, Pastor? Yeah, I'll do it. But look what it says in Hebrews. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you can have works all day long, good works. You can have good humanitarian effort. You can feed the poor. You can love on people. You can chant at all the rallies. You can do all the good things. You can be nice to everybody. You can tip really well when you go out to eat. You can do all of that and still displease God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And now when you do those things, it's just a fragrant offering of worship. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly or diligently seek him. What does faith look like? Work. Faith looks like work. Faith looks like obedience. So it's always got to be driven by faith. Are you tracking? So Jesus is the rewarder of faith. One more story and we're done. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. So the, the, the chapter continues. Jesus calls Levi. Jesus talks about fasting. And then Jesus is walking through a field with his crew, with his ministry team. They're walking through this uh, field, and they're hungry, and they're eating pieces of grain. They must have been really hungry. But because they were picking grain, the interpretation of the scribes were they're breaking the Sabbath. Someone told me after first service, they said that, that in, in Israel, they have automatic elevators so you don't have to break the Sabbath by pushing the button. So you stand there, you wait for the elevator. No pushing buttons because if you push a button, you break the Sabbath. These guys were so bent on the Sabbath, so bent on the Sabbath that if you had to use a clothespin to co- cover up your robe, then by you pushing that clothespin through the clothes, you were plowing and you broke the Sabbath. And so Jesus makes this statement. The Sabbath was not made for man. It was made for, I'm sorry, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, there it is, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Guess what? It's my Sabbath. If I want to eat on the Sabbath, I'm going to eat on the Sabbath. If I want to heal on the Sabbath, it's my Sabbath. It's mine to, quote-unquote, break. He can do with it whatever he wants to do because he's Lord over all, even the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. Those intentions again. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. That's what he's saying during worship today. Come here. 
He looks at the afflicted. He looks at you. He looks where you're struggling. He looks at your issues, and he doesn't go, go away. He says, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, accusing in their silence. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved. That's interesting. He's angry, but he's grieved. He's compassionate, but he's angry. Which is it? Yes. See, he has the ability to have both. To be angry and compassionate. Well, why was he compassionate? Because he was grieved at their hardness of heart. He was grieved because they were bitter. Because they were living in this accusation. Because they wouldn't be able to experience what he had to bring. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Why? Because they were so married to the system that they missed Jesus. They were so married to their interpretation that it infuriated them to the point to destroy Jesus. It's crazy. Because Jesus heals a man. And he didn't do it in the time or the day, or the moment, or in the way that they thought he should do it, they plot against him, and they take him to the government officials. And this is where we see the government start coming against Jesus early on. I believe the call of the Lord today is stretch out your hand. See, some of you have got you got things you've been, been believing the Lord for. Some of you just been living with it. Maybe you haven't been believing the Lord for it. You've just been going, well, this is just my lot in life. This is just my personality. This is just my dysfunction. I've learned to get by. I've learned to function as best I can but I've got this intense issue. And this is what I believe the Lord is saying. Stretch forth your hand. Stretch forth your issue. Will you have faith in me? Will you stretch out to me and watch me restore your dysfunction? Watch me make the broken things fixed. Watch me. Will you stand with me all across the room? Are you getting by? Close your eyes. Are you getting by? Just ask you this question. In your heart, ask this question today. Am I getting by? Am I just living with this infirmity, with this issue, with this struggle? Am I just getting by? Or am I functioning the way God designed me to? And I believe the call today is stretch forth your hand, which means this, stretch forth your faith. Because in that moment, he was obedient. 
But he was obedient because he was trusting what Jesus said. He was trusting the statements that Jesus made. Thank you.